You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. What is the state of the art in treating bladder cancers while trying to preserve quality of life? With us to discuss treatments for urologic malignancies and particularly bladder cancer is surgeon, urologic oncologist, and assistant professor of urology at Penn Medicine, Dr. Thomas Guzzo. Dr. Guzzo, thank you so much for being with us on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. Thank you for having me. Now, when it comes to urologic malignancies, I think things have advanced significantly in the past several years. In focusing on bladder cancer, can you give us a kind of up-to-date overview of the condition? Sure. Bladder cancer is a very common cancer in the United States, although a lot of people aren't familiar or as familiar with bladder cancer as they are many other more commonly known cancers in the United States. But there are over 70,000 cases of bladder cancer in the U.S. diagnosed each year. Wow. There's actually close to 15,000 cancer-related deaths from bladder cancer each year alone in the United States. That's the fourth most common cancer in men in the United States. And, you know, bladder cancer is a very heterogeneous disease, meaning that it runs the gamut from low-grade and not very risky to a patient's mortality to very, very aggressive. When we look at bladder cancers, roughly about 70% of them are what we call non-muscle invasive bladder cancers or cancers that are not very invasive into the wall of the bladder. And those are managed very differently than muscle invasive bladder cancers, which encompass the other 30% of bladder cancers. And those are very aggressive, very deadly cancers that need to be treated very aggressively. And so when we first meet bladder cancer patients, one of the very, very important things we try to figure out early on is exactly where they fall into that category as far as staging and prognosis, because the treatments are very, very different. Yeah, as an internist, I certainly have some patients who have, the, I guess they call it transitional cell, who are just getting infusions of chemotherapeutic agents into the bladder, whereas I have other patients who have needed their bladders removed. Correct. And so for non-muscle invasive bladder cancers, particularly higher grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancers, especially the transitional cell carcinomas or the urothelial carcinomas of the bladder, the what we would consider the gold standard treatment would be after initial resection and removing all the visible tumor and again making sure that they don't have a muscle invasive bladder cancer to the best of our ability, the gold standard would be intravesical BCG. Intravesical BCG is actually a live tuberculosis bacteria, which we commonly know as something we use for tuberculosis vaccination. But what intravesical BCG does for bladder cancer patients is we don't know precisely how it works, but what it does in essence is create a very intense immune reaction in the bladder and actually helps the patient's own immune system decrease the chance of having a bladder cancer recurrence and decrease the chance of having a bladder cancer progress to a more invasive stage. That is very interesting. And I think of smoking as a big risk factor for bladder cancers. Are there other patients we should be particularly watchful of this illness? There are. Uh, Smoking is the number one risk factor in industrialized nations. And, you know, smoking increases the risk of bladder cancer up to two to fourfold than the average patient who does not smoke. Mm -hmm. If you look at all of the bladder cancer cases in the United States, probably about 50% of them can be attributed to smoking. So that is by and large the the single biggest risk factor, but there are other risk factors. The next biggest one in our country would be occupational exposures. And so we see this in people who are in certain industries that are exposed to aromatic amines, such as auto workers, truck drivers, aluminum smelters, hairdressers, people that work in the shipyards in Philadelphia. They're, they're a particular risk for bladder cancer. And the people who are 
what we consider the highest risk are people who smoke and have occupational exposure on top of that. They have very, very serious bladder cancer risk. Some of the other less well-known factors for bladder cancer risk are chronic inflammation in the bladder. So people who have a chronic indwelling Foley catheter need to be surveilled, you know, on a yearly basis. There's mm-hmm. a certain parasite that we don't see too often in the United States, but in the Middle East and in parts of Africa, there's a parasite called schistosomiasis that mm-hmm. predisposes people to squamous cell carcinoma of the bladder. But the big ones in our country are smoking and occupational exposure. And do we see this presenting either with macroscopic or microscopic hematuria, or are there other things we should be looking for? Hematuria is the big one, and the significant majority, upwards of 85% of patients, will present with either gross or microscopic hematuria. So it's very important both for internists and urologists like myself to take hematuria very seriously and, and institute the proper workup if we see patients with blood in their urine. About 10 to 15% of patients who don't present with hematuria will sometimes present with lower urinary tract symptoms, very similar to urinary tract infections. They'll have urgency. They can have some burning or dysuria when they urinate, and that's irritation related to the tumor. Mm-hmm. And those are patients that are, can be very difficult from a diagnostic standpoint, meaning there's sometimes the patient who's been seeing a physician who maybe treats them for a urinary tract infection, things don't get better, and things might be left a little too long before a bladder tumor is actually discovered. And so any patient who doesn't initially get better with conservative treatment for lower urinary tract symptoms, we always got to keep it in the back of our minds the potential for a bladder cancer that we should investigate. Now, if we have a tumor that is invasive to the muscularis, into the muscle, what surgical approaches should we consider? I've been told that you're very unique. You're trained in open laparoscopic, endoscopic, and robotic surgery. How do you decide which way to go? That's a great question. And, you know, I think one of the things I always tell patients when I see them from a surgical perspective is not one surgery fits all patients and not all patients are can be pegged into one surgery. And so you have to take the individual patient, what their medical comorbidities are, what prior surgeries they might have had, and what the stage of their disease is. And that's you take all of those things into account. And some people are better served with an open surgery. Some people are very good candidates for a laparoscopic or a robotic surgery. Before we even get into the discussion with patients about, you know, a major surgery such as cystectomy or removal of the bladder, we talk to them, you know, about disease prognosis overall and steps that they may need even before surgery. So for patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer, there's some very good randomized trials that show that neoadjuvant chemotherapy confers an overall survival benefit to patients prior to cystectomy. And so we talk a lot about how we can optimize their chances of having a prolonged disease-free survival with both cystectomy and chemotherapy. Specifically with robotic surgery, a lot of patients are candidates for robotic surgery from a cystectomy standpoint, but not everyone. And in my opinion, people who have bigger, bulkier tumors are often better served with an open surgery. People with smaller tumors who haven't had surgeries in the past are good candidates for robotic surgery. And robotic surgery offers the potential for a less invasive surgery, the potential for less blood loss, potentially a quicker recovery. And with robotic surgery and bladder cancer, it's a relatively new procedure, meaning we've been only doing it about the last half decade as opposed to prostate surgery, which has been around for about 10 years from a robotic standpoint. So we don't know the long-term benefits of robotic surgery with regard to cancer control, but what we've seen in small short-term studies is that the pathologic outcomes are very, very similar to that of the open surgery. 
Very interesting. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me to discuss the successful treatment of bladder cancer is surgeon, urologic oncologist, and assistant professor of urology at Penn Medicine, Dr. Thomas Guzzo. Dr. Guzzo, in terms of post-surgical quality of life, what are some of the concerns and does the concept of a neobladder fit in here? It certainly does. And Whenever I sit down and talk with a patient about cystectomy, you can see it in their face, whether they come out and say it right away or whether they talk about it at the end of the conversation. What everyone starts to think about is what in God's earth am I going to do with my urine and how am I going to store urine or how am I going to go to the bathroom after this? And it's incredibly concerning for patients. And so a lot of the conversation not only centers around their cancer and how we're going to cure their cancer, but also what their quality of life is going to be after urinary diversion. Mm-hmm. There's three basic options for urinary diversion. The first, the oldest, the least complicated is something called an ileal conduit. Mm-hmm. An ileal conduit is typically about 8 to 10 centimeters of distal ileum that we take out of continuity with the intestinal tract reconnect the GI tract, and then plug the ureters into the piece of bowel that we remove from the intestinal tract, and then we bring it out to a stoma. And so patients essentially have a non-continent diversion or urine that empties into a bag. The two other types of urinary diversion are what we call continent diversions, or it's building a bladder reservoir, typically from either small or large bowel. There's something called an orthotopic neobladder or an orthotopic bladder substitution where we take about 60 centimeters of smaller large bowel, but typically small bowel, essentially open up the bowel, reconfigure it into something that looks like a pouch, and then reconnect it to the patient's own urethra. And they void more or less like they did before surgery with the exception that they void more by abdominal pressure than they do actual contraction of the neobladder. Interesting. Is incontinence an issue, leakage with that type? It can be, and uh, especially nighttime incontinence. It's not all that dissimilar to someone who's had prostate surgery because in males the prostate is removed with this kind of surgery, and typically they have to learn to gain their continence again after surgery, but most people typically do. The hardest part from a continence standpoint with an orthotopic neobladder is actually nighttime incontinence, and people will find that's the most difficult to control because when they're asleep, they forget they need to be working on their continence mentally, and also their bladder can fill up a little more than it does during the day, and they can leak a little bit more urine at night. The people who have the least difficulty with incontinence after this kind of surgery are younger people because they have better pelvic musculature, and they can recover their continence typically pretty well. And so we can do the ileal conduit or form a neobladder out of small bowel or large bowel. Correct. And then the third option is something called a continent cutaneous pouch. And that's a very similar operation where we build a pouch on the inside, but instead of hooking it up to the patient's urethra, we bring it out to a very small stoma on their skin that's continent, which is about the size of a dime. And what they do Mm. is they just catheterize that stoma every three to four hours during the day. And so they're continent, but they don't void per their urethra, they actually catheterize. And that's a good option for some patients who have their urethra removed, and so they can't have an orthotopic neobladder. Patients who have had pelvic radiation, it's sometimes difficult to hook something back up to their urethra because there can be scar tissue or a high rate of stricture. And a lot of women often choose a continent catheterizable pouch because for reasons that we're not entirely sure about, women are often hypercontinent with orthotopic neobladders, meaning they often have to catheterize themselves anyway, Ah. and it's much easier for them to catheterize an abdominal stoma than it is per their urethra. 
imagine infection risk comes into play when you're doing self-catheterization? It does, but no more than the typical patient that is performing clean intermittent catheterization in their regular bladder. There is an increased risk of urinary tract infection with any form of urinary diversion, and we can occasionally see patients with pretty significant recurrent infections either in their neobladders or in their kidneys, but I would say on average that's only about 10 to 15% of patients. And just from listening to you describe the options, it seems that most people, if they're suitable candidates, would choose that middle option, having the orthotopic uh, bladder. Is, is that how it tends to go? Most younger active patients do want a orthotopic or some form of continent urinary diversion, as long as they don't have some sort of contraindication either. Again, if they have something wrong with their urethra, a very important aspect of continent diversion is they need to have pretty normal kidney function because what bowel does is it absorb, It was born to absorb things, I always mm-hmm. tell patients. And so what happens is it, it will absorb a certain amount of urine and the kidneys can't tolerate that if they're not working fairly perfectly. And so patients who have a, a little bit of chronic renal insufficiency, they're not great candidates for orthotopic diversions. Patients who have some form of significant bowel dysfunction like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, they're not great candidates also to have a significant portion of their bowel removed and sometimes they're better candidates for non-continent diversions. I always also tell my patients that you know, there's never been a great study that has shown that people are happier with one diversion over the other and I think a lot of that is because we highly select patients for these different types of diversions and we, we counsel them extensively beforehand. So by and large, as long as a patient knows what they're getting into and the expectation is in the right place, people adjust very well to diversion. In the minute we have left, as we look to the future, are there things on the horizon, either surgically, prosthetically, chemotherapy, radiation, that may further advance treatment of bladder cancer? There are some exciting developments in urinary diversion that are taking place over the last couple of years. There's some research going on where in the laboratory they're using tissue-engineered neobladders from the patient's either autologous urothelial cells from their own bladder or stem cells, and we're starting to essentially try to grow bladders. Hmm. This would be a major advance in bladder cancer. That is fascinating. Well, I would very much like to thank our guest today, Dr. Thomas Guzzo, professor of urology at Penn Medicine, for outlining for us the approach to bladder cancer and some of the newer treatments that are available and things that may be available in the near future that are very, very exciting. Dr. Guzzo, thank you for spending time with us this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.